And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The word of the Lord. You've heard the expression, haven't you? Uh, keep, keeping up with the Joneses. Now, when I hear that expression, I want to know, who are the Joneses? And why do we have to keep up with them? Normally, the expression has to do with conspicuous consumption, right? Uh, we want to be associated with a group of people, so we keep pace with the kind of house they have, the kind of car they have, the club they belong to, or whatever. But did you ever realize keeping up with the Joneses has its own spiritual version? And we read about it right here in Luke chapter 10. This lawyer, and another word for his occupation would be scribe, he's asking Jesus a question. Who are the spiritual Joneses and how do I belong to them? And Jesus answers that question. And it's a question that's still on our minds today. We want to know who is the spiritual in-group and who isn't. Who is on God's side, as Bob Dylan famously sung, and who isn't? And Jesus answers the question, and he gives a very simple answer that would have on the one hand, not surprised the lawyer at all, but on the other hand, would have turned his world upside down if the lawyer ultimately understood what Jesus was saying. And here's the answer that Jesus gives. Uh, the word for keeping up with the Joneses is used here as the word justified, and here's what Jesus' answer is. The justified are those who reflect God's mercy, or we can even say it this way, the just are the ones who are merciful. Often we put mercy and justice at odds with one another, but Jesus' answer, the just are the merciful. And we can see Jesus' answer in the form of the request of the lawyer, and then Jesus' response, and then there's a third R coming here, and in the recognition required of that response. The three R's, a request, the response, and the recognition of who are the spiritual Joneses and how do we belong or how do we fit in 
with them. First of all, the request. When the man comes to Jesus, he asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is code language. This is not, how do I get my ticket punched so I can go to heaven when my body gives out? Uh, We commonly think of it that way, but that's not what's involved in the biblical concept here. It's how do I get to belong to Messiah's kingdom? How do I get to fit in with the in crowd when the kingdom of God comes? And that was Jesus' message that he was preaching that the kingdom of God was coming. It was arriving in him. But it's not just, he's not just a seeker. Don't give the scribe the benefit of being just a seeker because we're told in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus is gaining a following. He's having authority as a religious teacher. The the lawyer who is a scribe is one of the other religious teachers and he wants to know, does Jesus have game? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? And so his motive is to put Jesus to the test and say, who gets to be in the in crowd? Who belongs to the true Israel? And the question here, inherit eternal life, is telling of that. Because it's, it's, it's Old Testament language of being an heir of Old Testament Israel, belonging to Israel. In other words, how does one be a good Jew, Jesus? That's what the scribe is asking. How will I be part of the party? How do I get a VIP pass? How can I be counted among those who make it? Remember, Israel was God's chosen nation in the Old Testament. And it was assumed, particularly by religious leaders like this scribe, that not everyone would measure up. After all, even within Israel, there were clean and unclean people. We read about many of them. And Jesus' response is pretty straightforward. It's Jewish 101. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus turns the question back to the scribe, knowing the scribe is a scribe, and he says, what does the law say? Well, the lawyer rightly responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. This is Israel's great command from Deuteronomy chapter 6, called the Shema, because it begins with the Hebrew word Shema, which is hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your being. Love God, that's the first answer. And then he adds, what everybody would know in Jewish 101, the second answer, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a quote from Leviticus 19. So the scribe knows the law and Jesus knows the law. And so they're matching their answers so far. Now don't misunderstand here that Jesus is saying spirituality is performance-based. This is a question of who's in and who's out, not how do you get in. And he gives the right answer. But you see, the, the problem is we're, we're always doing what this scribe is doing. We're trying to figure out who's in and who's out. But in the end, and I'm going to show us how this is true, in the end, we make other people the measure of that. We look at other people and say, how do we compare to them? It's like that old joke about the two men walking along and they run into a bear and one starts to tie on his running shoes, Right? And his friend says, you can't outrun that bear. And what does the guy say? Yeah, I only only have to outrun you. 
And so the scribe here, as a scribe, is, he, he, he's moving toward this, this, this tendency that we all have is to make other people the measure. And so he's going to follow up with a question here. Who is my neighbor? So I know love God, love neighbor. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. And then verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Tell me who I have to love, and by definition, who I don't have to love. This is a spiritual tendency in all of us. I made a friend a few years ago. He was an A-10 Army aircraft pilot. Those of you with military backgrounds know that the A-10 is a cannon with an airplane built around it. And he flew in Afghanistan, and after we got to know each other a little bit, he shared with me that he was involved in a friendly fire incident. Now, he didn't want to go into details with me. He was only marginally at fault from what he did share with me, but it haunted him. His training was to be meticulous, unerring in his ability to tell friendlies from hostiles. That was his one job. But when he failed to do that to the nth degree, he ended up doing the enemy's work for them. And here's the point for us. When we start to lean the way the scribe does and say, who do I have to love and who do I not have to love? We're doing the enemy's work for him. When we want God to sort out who we have an obligation toward and who we don't, who we can write off and who we can, who our Joneses are that we want to be a part of, we're doing the enemy's work. And the reason I think this is so relevant is that in our current conflict climate, we're sometimes so ready to identify who's in our tribe and who isn't that we make friendly fire mistakes all the time. We mistake friends for enemies and we actually do the enemy's work because we make man the measure of the kingdom of God. Here's a simple question. Here's a simple litmus test. Have you reposted a story on the internet without reading the story, but from the headline, you knew you agreed with it? That's an example of what we call confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is just a specific form of relativism. Bible-believing Christians used to rail against the word for its moral relativism. That progressives, that non-believers just saw right and wrong as whatever people wanted to be, wanted to be on one day. Well, relativism has invaded the Christian church with confirmation bias, with writing people off if they have one view or another, with cancel culture. And when we do that, we're committing the friendly fire mistake. That's the request that the scribe had. He wasn't simply coming innocently to understand better. He wants to know who he has to treat like an image of God and who he doesn't. Well, the next thing we see is the reply. The reply. True love of God loves neighbor. That's that's the law's answer, but then Jesus doesn't stop there. Have you ever like, gone to a grown-up, a grandparent, or a parent, like asked for money or whatever, 
and instead of giving you the money or answering the question, can I go stay at my friend's house? They, they say, let me tell you a story. Kids, they're not driving nuts. Like, are you going to give me the money or not? Are you going to let me go to my friend's house or not? If, not, if, if the answer is no, please spare me the story. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't. And it's the, the reason Jesus is such a brilliant teacher is because the, in, in the ambu, ambiguities of parables, we're not quite sure where to put our foot down. And just like when Nathan confronted David, it exposes us. So Jesus tells the story Perhaps the best known parable in the whole New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, it, in, those, in that parable, we meet three characters, four actually, but we meet a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now, this sounds like one of those walked into a bar jokes, right? A, like a a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walked into a bar, the bartender said, what is this, a joke? You know, those kind of those kind of jokes, but it's not a joke. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, and they all see the same thing. They see a man who was going on his way between Jericho and Jerusalem. He was fell upon by thieves. He was robbed and beaten and left in a ditch. The priest saw, we see two verbs of the priest and the Levite. The priest saw and he passed by. The Levite saw and he passed by. Why? And these were holy men, right? The priest who was part of the descendants of Aaron who served in the temple, especially in the holy place and the holy of holies. They were the priests of priests. And then there's a Levite. He's a descendant of the whole tribe of Levi who served in the tabernacle courts and in the temple courts helping to make the sacrifices and deciding law cases for the people. And these were professional clergy. They see and they pass by. Why would they do that? Well, there is a certain callousness, no doubt. But, here, but, but, but there's more than that going on. If they stop and help this beaten, bloodied man, they can't go to work that day. You see, this beaten, bloodied man would have been ceremonially unclean as he lay there, this victim of this crime. And perhaps they even considered him beyond help. If they had touched him, they would have had to go and cleanse themselves for days and days before they could return to their labors. They saw their duty for God as conflicting with the duty toward this neighbor. And whenever the two conflict, which one's more important? Well, this was the Pharisee's answer. This is a religious leader's answer. Duty toward God is more important than duty toward man. That's why you see in one case, Jesus mentions the, 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 the religious figure who, who, whose parents are destitute. They're impoverished. They don't have food. But the son says, I've promised this money to the temple and I can't help you, mom and dad. This is Pharisaism. We often think of Pharisaism as setting the bar too high. That's really, really not what it is. Pharisaism, the religious leaders of the Jews, their great mistake was they saw the ceremonial laws separate from the moral laws. And the ceremonial laws were religious duties toward God. The moral laws were duties toward neighbor, and they were just two different things. Well, the, the parable exposes this. That out of some effort to obey the great commandment, they have to disobey the second commandment. And it just doesn't make sense, does it? 
there's two verbs with the Levite and the, and the priest. When it gets to the Samaritan, there are a lot more verbs. Now, who is the Samaritan? You might remember the Samaritan woman from John chapter 4, but the Samaritans were the northern tribes that had um, fallen before the southern kingdom back previous to the time of Jesus. And, and, the, and the Assyrians who conquered the northern tribes, they actually took all the Israelites away and brought in all these other nations of people. And in fact, over time, there developed a, 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 a false sanctuary on Mount Gerizim. That's what the Samaritan woman is asking about. She's asking Jesus, where, where should somebody, where, where should people worship God? You're, the Jews say in Jerusalem, we say in Mount Gerizim, the, uh, the, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were seen as unclean from birth by the Jews. And there were all kinds of good reasons because their worship was heretical and there was violence between the two. But the most impossible person you could imagine being justified, for somebody like the scribe at least, the most impossible person you might imagine being justified would be a Samaritan. But what does he do? Look at the verbs. The Samaritan came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on them and wine. He set them on his own animal, brought them to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Not if I come back, but when I come back. There are 11 verbs describing what the Samaritan does in contrast to the two verbs of neglect of the two religious leaders. The point of the story is obvious. The Samaritan was the real Jew, while the two men who were Jews by birth proved themselves not to be. What this teaches us is neighbor love is fundamental to God love, right? Is that confusing? Now, after all, isn't love a feeling? Isn't loving God having strong emotions toward God? Isn't that what loving God is? Like sort of similar to, honey, I forgot your birthday. I would have pulled over on the way home and bought flowers, but I would have had to make a left turn against traffic. But nevertheless, I have a very strong emotional affection for you. Or say, say when a mother says, son, you know how strongly I feel about you, but I was with my girlfriends and we were having so much fun catching up and I figured you would get a ride home with someone else or just figure out an Uber home from practice. No, that's not love. That's neglect. A lot of church people, a lot of people, a lot of people in the church world are nervous about what church is gonna look like post-COVID. Um, many, many, most, shall we say, people who are staying home are doing so out of legitimate health concerns, just like my family did for several months. But there are a lot of people who are going to really enjoy church on the couch. Or when I was in college, we used to call it the church of the inner spring. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not talking to you folks at home because of your health concerns, not at all. 
But a lot of people are going to stay home because it's easier. And not just easier in terms of being able to sip your coffee or not have to get out of your pajamas, but easier by not being around people. You're glad, if that's one of you, you're glad Covenant has figured out this technology thing and you're just hoping they'll keep it going. And if you don't like the guest preacher, you can change the channel to someone who won't remind you that you are not a neighbor unless I can smell you. (laughs) The churches that have struggled the most during this time are ones that are based on their members receiving. The churches that have had less trouble during this time are ones that were accustomed to giving to one another because they understood that you love God by loving neighbor and specifically showing mercy to the needy. And one of the things that feeds this most is tribalism. We can be as tribalistic as any primitive people if we just don't get around other people or if we only get around people like us. And that's at the root of a lot of the conflict in our culture today. That we see religious relationship with God as a private individual matter that is nobody else's business. And Jesus just destroyed that error in your mind and he is on record with you this morning that that is false religion. It is certainly not the Christian faith. The request... The reply, finally, the recognition, the recognition. And this is true so much in, uh, in the Gospels. It's not just the stories themselves, but the frame around them that really gives you the whole picture. Because at the end of the parable, Jesus said to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. What was the question that began the parable? Not what should I do for my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Jesus finishes the parable and asks, so who is the neighbor? And it's just like a low block. It's like a blind side. When the scribe realizes what Jesus is asking, Of course you're supposed to love the man in the ditch, but the bigger point of the parable is the Samaritan is your neighbor. Because he was a law keeper. He kept the second command. He's the one who will inherit eternal life. He is the one who is justified. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, lawyer. You're going to be sitting next to a Samaritan. If you're in the kingdom... That ought to disturb us because all of us have in our minds certain people that are not, no, not going to be there. And we will be very surprised if God has mercy upon us to give us a seat at his banquet. The Samaritan was the neighbor. The scribe the lawyer, he was holding to a nationalistic gospel, which is no gospel. 
Even from the beginning, God had promised Abraham that the promises to him were for the nations. This Samaritan, he imitated God by becoming a host to the victim of the beating. An historical enemy who saw in that ditch an image of the Creator. We don't know how long that man lay in that ditch. We don't know whether it was an hour, two hours a day. We don't know whether it was eight hours and 59 minutes. And the Samaritan didn't wonder why he was there. He just had mercy upon him. And those are our neighbors. Those people who recognize justice and mercy fit together, belong together. Israel, the religious leaders of Israel had made Yahwism, that is the worship of Yahweh, nationalism. And religion became patriotism, and as a result, it was devoid of the power of God and did not reflect the justice and the mercy of God. And brothers and sisters, the world, our country, needs the church to help remind them that the things of God are greater than the things of man. A few weeks ago, there was a Kansas State undergraduate, conservative student group leader who tweeted about George Floyd. It was on the one-month anniversary of George Floyd's death, and here's what the student tweeted. Congratulations to George Floyd on being drug-free for an entire month. Now, what was the worst thing about that? Was it the tweet itself? Was it the fact that this dumb, stupid kid made a mistake and was receiving death threats? Was it the fact that his university was opening an investigation against him for something that was just probably a moment of impulse? Not in my opinion. The worst thing about it all was he identified himself as a follower of Christ. Thankfully, if he is a Christian... There is a wideness in God's mercy. Because without it, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Senator Ben Sass has written a book. I highly recommend it. It's called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He discusses anti-tribes. He discusses influences like the 24-hour news cycle. Bad actors out there exploiting our uncertainties, fears, and vulnerabilities. He says this, We aren't succeeding at addressing our emptiness, and they're poisoning our nation's spirit in critical ways. But lacking meaningful attachments, people are finding a perverse bond in at least sharing a common enemy. He says, the reason, the reason we are feeding on each other, the reason we are attacking one another is simply this. We have forgotten to be neighbors. We have no neighbors. Our neighbors are people at the other end of a social media feed. We can know something going on in Portland in an instant, but not even realize our next door neighbor has fallen and is laying in their kitchen floor. We don't even know their names. But we know the names of our favorite bloggers and podcasters. We're like dodos with the hunters 
coming because we are being victimized by our own fears rather than by faith that God has sent us into the world to be the salt and light of the world. You know what happened 400 years after Rome began persecuting Christians? Rome woke up and saw that the Christians were taking the babies that weren't wanted off the trash piles and bringing them home. They saw that the Christians were visiting the widows and the orphans and taking care of the vulnerable. And on that basis, as Rodney Stark's well-known book reveals, that on that basis, the Roman Empire pivoted and embrace the Christian faith. Because Christians were loving neighbors like no one else. James says in chapter 1, that's true religion. Even though we curse God, we, we, even though we bless God with our mouth, we curse neighbor who has made an image, but true religion is this, caring for the outcast. And the Samaritan was the valedictorian of this school for the scribe that day. The request, we make man the measure of righteousness and therefore we, we, we decline into tribalism. But the reply is, you can't love God if you don't love neighbor. But the recognition is this, that the neighbor might be somebody we don't expect. Surprises us very much. Finish with a story that was actually quite moving when I heard my wife tell it to me. We were living in Detroit at the time and she got called for jury duty in Detroit. <clears throat> and my instructions to her were, whatever you do, school teacher, don't get made jury foreman. Well, she came home the first day and said, guess what? I said, what? She said, I didn't agree to be jury foreman. I said, thank you. <clears throat> she came home the second day Guess what? What? I'm jury foreman. I said, how did that happen? Well, the guy they picked the first day decided not to come back. And uh, so uh, the school teacher got named jury foreman. It was uh, serious. It was a gang-related murder. And uh, it was a dramatic trial. There was one eyewitness who did not see the face of the accused, but she gave testimony, shaking like a leaf, terrified because the courtroom was filled with gang members of the accused, all wearing colors. Her parents sitting on each side, bravely supporting her testimony. But of dozens of people who saw what happened, who really saw what happened, no one would come forward. Vicky told me that people on the jury were kind of interesting. There was, there was one person who said, hey, he's probably guilty, but cops lie all the time. I don't believe anything they say. There was another person on the jury that said, if this guy didn't do it, he probably did something else that deserves it. And if these people won't, aren't willing to come forward and testify, they deserve what they get. So you get the idea. People on the jury from one end of the spectrum to the other there was one gentleman, he came in a jacket and tie every day. He was an African-American man, late 40s, early 50s. I picture Stanley from the office if uh, you're trying to picture him, but without the attitude. He sat there and listened judiciously, carefully, contributed. 
In the end, the jury reached a guilty verdict on a lesser charge, but here's what was so moving about it all. The trial concluded, the verdict was reached, and the judge said simply, bye. And so the jury members had to walk out of the Wayne County Courthouse and across those very overly wide Michigan surface roads to the parking garage in the darkness and the drizzle and the sleet of that early winter evening. And Vicki stood there looking across, wondering who might be waiting for her at her car, wondering who might be out to seek revenge. And she heard behind her our friend Stanley say, I'm walking to you, you to your car. And he stuck out his arm. And it wasn't a surprise to her because of having spent that week with him. But he walked her to a car and saw her safely there. The least, the least suspecting Samaritan of some of those jurors proved to be the neighbor. Let's be judicious as God's people to let the world see what it's like to think, to see, to have compassion. And it doesn't mean the politics is simple. It doesn't mean that everybody out there has a pure motive because there are many perverse motives. But the church has to be different for the world to have any hope. May God have mercy on us to enable us not to be so concerned with the Joneses on our right or the Joneses on our left so that we are blind to who our true neighbor is. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do pray for insight into these perilous times. It is so confusing and everyone is telling us something that makes us angry. Help us not to live out of anger, but to live out of love so that the world may know that we are your disciples, Jesus, and that they may want to know you as well. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.